0: So in my full-time job, uh, I work as kind of a a consultant or an assistant to consultants who work with churches that are stuck or struggling or looking to uh, redefine or reimagine what their purpose is as a church for the sake of their community and ultimately for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, And one of the questions that we ask is... What defines your community? And we ask it through an exercise that is really a discussion prompt, and the discussion prompt is, uh, what would, using last Sunday at your church as your only data, uh, what would somebody who is new at your church say your church cares about? It's a good question, good question for reflection. Uh, It leads to some interesting answers, some encouraging conversations, some of it. Uh, less encouraging depending on sort of where the church is in their in their life cycle Uh, but I often give that question thought with regard to, to our community So what defines us as a community maybe you've heard of the the term olfactory fatigue anybody familiar with that it's also called I learned this week nose blindness so you've smelled something for so long that you no longer recognize it so people who work with chemicals on a daily basis will often develop olfactory fatigue, so if you come to the plant where they work or or their workstation, you might be overwhelmed by the smell, but they work in it every day. Uh, Something similar happens, I work as a cross-country coach, sometimes my car is full of uh, sweaty college students after a workout, uh, so I am used to it, and then my wife will get in the car. That is olfactory fatigue, she'll say, what died in here? so the same thing can happen with churches in church life, a kind of olfactory fatigue that you just get used to seeing the same things, you get used to experiencing the same things. And it's good to kind of have that perspective shift of, um, you know, what is it that we see every week and that we sort of miss uh, that we might think through, how do we be intentional about this? Does this reflect what we value as a community? Maybe are we doing some things that, don't really reflect what we value as a community, that we don't even maybe realize. So, in thinking through this question, just listening to things like our announcements, some of the endeavors that we're involved in, safe to sleep, preparing meals, our common meal today, I would say, and I'm in no position to answer this question because I'm obviously a regular here, but I would say that we care about eating. We care about sharing meals together, among other things. Uh, you might be overwhelmed as a, as a guest to come into our space at the, uh, the volume, uh, the ambient noise of our children, which is an exciting thing to, an uh, exciting prospect. It's a good problem to have, I suppose. Uh, I would also say that this church is full of people who uh, grow their own food or care about where their food comes from. Uh, and in small group, in our small group, we posed the question to one another, if you knew for whatever reason, you knew it was going to be your last meal, what would be the meal that you choose to eat, and with whom would you eat it? And we had some interesting answers to that question, some that we uh, would like to forget, um, people in our small group in the room right now, but we, we like to think about what we eat, we like to uh, talk about eating. Of course, we like to eat together. Our church is full of people who like to eat. Duke Divinity School professor Norman Wurzba talks about what he calls the gradual diminishment of the sacredness of the natural world. He says, we have very little sense of the vulnerability and the fragility of the food that we eat. And he makes two recommendations to his students. He says, first, Learn about the history of the food that you like. Just think about some of the foods that you like. And the history of justice or injustice that plays out in the story of its coming to be. The second thing he says to his students, it's interesting, many of them live in apartments or dorms, but he says, try to grow one thing. Even in an apartment, so grow one thing, attempt to do it, and then keep a record, maybe a a journal. And many of them find out that they... Uh, in the course of their journaling, can't even get something to grow, maybe let alone germinate in their apartment. But this allows his students to kind of relearn what is so easy to forget that food is a gift, and so much of it is beyond our control in its growth and in its planting and its harvesting. Our love of food, I would suggest to you, in this community, is not a small thing. It's not just a side matter. <clears throat> it's not unspiritual. In fact, it's one connection that we have with the earliest followers of Jesus. So take a look at Acts 2. We find this vibrant picture in Acts chapter 2 of what the early church looked like, what were they up to, what are the things that they did, how did they spend their time together, what defined them as a community. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, these earliest followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Skip down to verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in this brief but packed description of what the the early church was up to, their life as followers of Christ, we have no fewer than three mentions of food. If you read the book of Acts, many more mentions of meals, some of which we'll get to here this morning. But why this strong emphasis? Well, the first is obvious, a couple of practical reasons, right? Necessity. So if it's true that they were really spending this much time together, they obviously spent a lot of time eating together. We've gotta to eat to survive. Secondly, take into account cultural customs, so in the Jewish faith, think about all of the religious feast days, and Judaism, and the centrality and ceremonial significance of feasts. But a third reason, I think, involves the other two, but also sort of transcends it, and that's this. I think the Savior that they were trying to follow, Jesus, the one who they were trying to imitate, seemed to have carried out much of his mission while sharing a meal, And the table is, for him, in a lot of circumstances, where justice is played out. So, a few things about Jesus. Jesus was raised by parents with a sense of justice from the Hebrew scriptures. So the first sense we get of this is when Jesus' birth is announced to Mary. And this song of praise that that, that sort of spills out of her, Luke chapter 1, verses 52 through 53, after she's heard this news, obviously shocked. Our first response might not be a song of praise, but Luke records that hers is, and it sounds like this. She says, he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. So there are References here, resonances with the Hebrew scriptures within this song that Mary sings. The first is that I'd like to point out is from Psalm 113. We read in verses 5 through 8, you can hear resonances here with Mary's song. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And here it is, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And Mary's sense of justice, we can deduce here, involved food. So in Psalm 107, she echoes this scripture, he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So we can deduce, perhaps, that Jesus' parents instilled in him the importance of food, and its being bound up with justice and injustice. Secondly, Jesus' self-understanding much like the church's self-understanding, took shape around meals, around shared meals. In Luke 2, verse 41, we read, and this is sort of a, a verse that we often skip over in the juicy part of this story, which is where Jesus runs away from his parents, but it's important. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So Jesus is accustomed to taking part in these feasts. This is something that he's regularly used to. He grew up in a religiously observant family, something that we can often overlook, Jesus being religious. And that observance revolved around feasts. In Luke chapter five, verse 29, we see that Jesus ate with large groups. Jesus often ate with large groups of disreputable folks. And Levi, a tax collector, made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others. We might insert the word riffraff here, tax collectors and others, reclining at table with him. This is not necessarily who you'd advertise if you were looking to uh, start a PR campaign for Jesus. He's eating with the riffraff. Or in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, read that Jesus ate in some intimate settings with reputable, upstanding religious folks. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. We read that Jesus ate with women in Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Jesus ate with his friends, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. Jesus ate with his enemies, and Jesus ate with his friends and his enemies at the same time, something that's certainly not advisable. Luke chapter 22, verse 21, so just a few verses later, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Not just with his disciples, but with the one who would betray him. Jesus ate with strangers. He readily accepted invitations to eat with others. So Luke chapter 24, verse 30, the disciples on the road to Emmaus offer him the invitation. They urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with him, famously here, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. Jesus, this is probably my favorite, ate after he was resurrected. Luke chapter 24, verses 41 through 43, he showed them, his disciples, his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? do you love that? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. I especially love that one. Think about all of the profound questions that Jesus asks during his earthly ministry. Come to this high point. He's resurrected. He's got his disciples around him, feeling his hands, his feet. Do you have anything to eat? It's the question that he asks. So think about that. The early church taking their cues from Jesus himself, his table ministry, the meals that he took part in, And our gospel text from today comes from Luke chapter 14, and it includes another instance of Jesus' dining. And in this instance, a dinner provides both the setting for and the content of Jesus' teaching. So in Luke chapter 14, we open in verse 1, then we'll skip down and read verses 7 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, Something that he was accustomed to doing. Receives this invitation, takes them up on it. They were watching him carefully. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, you just stop here. Usually when Jesus tells a parable, it's not the exact situation that he's in. This is pretty on the nose. a very thinly veiled parable. So when he begins this parable, they're probably looking around at each other thinking, "Up, oh, I guess this is us. He told a parable to those who were invited. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. <coughs> So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So dinners in Jesus' day were the place where you could prove or improve your social status. Jesus offers some wise advice that invites the audience to rethink their assumptions about The importance of social functions at dinners this advice although wise obviously isn't original to Jesus it's taken straight from the book of Proverbs so in Proverbs chapter 25 verse 6 and 7 we read do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great for it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble pretty spot on right So what comes next in this uh, rather thinly veiled parable from Luke? This is probably, if that's the conventional wisdom, this is the less conventional wisdom, maybe what we're used to hearing more from Jesus. Luke chapter 14 verses 12 through 14. So he says this to the guests at the dinner, then he turns his attention to the host and he said, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends. Sounds a little odd. Or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. He has to be thinking at this point, that's ridiculous. Of course I want them to invite me in return. My rich neighbors, come on. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. This is so counter to the thinking of the day. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Certainly Jesus has to be misspeaking here. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this system of inviting, getting invited, system of balanced reciprocity says they invite me, I invite them. You can see very clearly how this becomes a closed system. Right? We don't get any new invites to the table within this system. And here Jesus offers much less palatable advice. He upends the audience's notion of balanced reciprocity. The one who I think lived this out better than anyone I'm aware on planet Earth, I don't know that many people, but the one I think is the best at this is a French Canadian Christian Catholic named Jean Vanier. Vanier, many of you know, founded L'Arche. L'Arche is this international network of uh, communities spread over, I think it's like 40 countries or so, for people with developmental disabilities and those who assist them, so they live together in community. And uh, Vanier died in May of this year, so he spent uh, Looks like about a half century. Started in 1964, his involvement with L'Arche. He wrote this in his book titled Living Gently in a Violent World. He said, I have the privilege of eating all my meals in a home with people with disabilities. You hear that? People who are the weakest are indispensable to the church. I have never seen this as the first line of a book on ecclesiology, church structure. Who really believes it? But, he says, this is the heart of faith, of what it means to be the church. So if we were to return to that question that I mentioned at the beginning, if you were to use only the data of last Sunday at your church, and frame it in terms of somebody who's new at your church, What would that person who was new coming think as they walked away from your church? What would they think that your church cares about? Well, they would probably frame it in terms of that church really cares about X. Sometimes when we ask that question to teams, they get really spiritual on us and they say things like, "Uh, that church really creates a worshipful environment. But probably if somebody's at your church for the first time, they're thinking, boy, those people sure like to sing. (laughs) Framing it in a little different terms, right? But, as I mentioned at the outset, there's another side to the answer to that question. And there are some more negative things that people notice. If we're honest with ourselves, we might notice them about our community as well. Things that happen that maybe don't reflect what we value or the kind of community that we want to become. Maybe something like, they seemed a bit closed off. Hope that's never said of our community. Or it felt like, it would take some real effort to work my way into that social group. It's easy, I think at least, to decry the practices of those in Luke 14 who are sort of scrambling for the highest seat, the most honorable seat. I think most of us who are self-aware in the room probably would not uh, vie for that seat and throw elbows. But is it possible that we could fall victim to the same sort of wrong thinking? Might we we be tempted to dismiss everyone vying for the head of the table as antiquated? Perhaps, but also, perhaps our social arrangements create a similar inattentiveness or a similar unhealthy preoccupation with status. So when I say that the church's self-understanding took shape around the table, I also want to hasten to add that they weren't immune from the unhealthy practices of table fellowship kind of the dark side of sharing meals together. In fact, one of the first recorded conflicts among the early church revolved around food. Just a few chapters later, after this beautiful picture, right, in Acts chapter six, we get this. But as the disciples grew in number, good thing, there were rumblings of discontent, not so good thing. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers Right there we have a division already, right? Saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So you can almost hear this appeal, right? Remember what Jesus said about what we should do when we invite people to eat together, should provide for them. Or perhaps they were thinking of the instruction that came from our scripture reading this morning. Remember from Deuteronomy, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are with you in your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you, and all the work of your hands that you do. I want to invite the musicians back up. We're going to prepare to have a meal together, which I think is fitting. The first Sunday of each month, we share a common meal, bring dishes to share, eat together, and it's not just a perfunctory exercise. In fact, it takes the, the place I don't want to say too much theologically about this, but it takes the place of what we usually do each week, which is gather around the table of the Lord, around the bread and the wine. But I think it's important for us to also have large-scale meals where we are physically nourished. I don't think any of us, knowing what I know about our love for food, leave this table feeling completely nourished. And that's not really the purpose of this table, but the purpose of the tables that we'll bring out here in just a moment is so that we will be able to fellowship together, uh, to have a meal together, to share food, to share our thoughts, to share conversation, all of those beautiful things. I want to just make a quick, I don't know if I should do this, an edit to scripture. (laughs) I shouldn't, but I'm I'm going to, so maybe we can take this out of the recording. In Romans chapter 5 verse 8, the Apostle Paul, so again, early Christian, says, God demonstrate, get demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe we, maybe we could say, in a way that's equally meaningful today, while we were still sinners, Christ dined with us. While we were still sinners, while we were still the ones unworthy of being invited to the table, Christ dined with us in revelation chapter 3 verse 20 this uh, famous passage of scripture behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in to him and eat with him and he with me we are promised that jesus not only already dined with us when we weren't worthy but will dine with us again our community, I would submit to you this morning, is uniquely positioned with all of our giftings and our knowledge of and our love for food to host and to feed those who are most in need of nourishment. And I'm, I want you to hear that in every conceivable way, spiritual, physical, emotional. Let me say it again, I think our community is poised, especially as we begin this, this building campaign and just thinking about Uh, our goal not being to necessarily grow in number but to grow in effectiveness for the sake of the kingdom, I think our community is uniquely poised to provide nourishment to feed those who are most in need. And for that, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 verse 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, before we close, I want to hasten to add that as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus in our endeavor to be the love of God at the dinner table, to demonstrate it there, we might be particularly susceptible to the kind of reckoning that the early church faced. So are are there those who are being overlooked? And if it's true, as I recently heard someone say that we Christians learn our table manners around the table of the Lord... It's particularly important that our meals be taken together and no one be overlooked. And it's important, I would submit to you this morning, that each of the meals that we take together, we prepare for one another, are really dress rehearsals for this final meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, described in Revelation chapter 19. And I'll close with this. We'll sing together. and then appropriately eat together. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride, the church, the one who likes to eat, has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, right and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's sing together.